Um, well, we are continuing our study in the book of Esther this morning. And before we do that, let me ask you this question. When you read your Bible, and especially the Old Testament narrative parts of it, like the book of Esther, how do you read it? How are you reading it? A lot of people read it like they're looking for examples to follow. And almost like they're, they, they want to read about people of God and, and like they're reading Aesop's fables, looking for moral principles and examples, both good and bad, to follow and imitate or to avoid and flee from. And that's not wrong exactly, because the, the, the Old Testament does provide us with both good examples of people who followed the Lord and bad examples of people who did not, and it presents us with the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, outcome of their lives and choices. But what I'm continuing to learn as I study God's Word is that the Bible is not really about the people in it. It is about God who is the hero of all of the stories. Of every single one. And the Bible is not really about the relative faithfulness or lack thereof of His people. It is about God and His continual faithfulness in spite of their unfaithfulness. And in spite of our unfaithfulness. Amen? So today as as we're looking at the book of Esther again, Esther chapter 2, and some, some very morally questionable things that go on in this chapter, I want you to read it with, with that lens in mind. That this story, even though God's name is not mentioned, is about God and His faithfulness to His people in hard circumstances and hard days. So, if you're able, I'd like you to stand with me uh, as I read the book of Esther, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Uh, After these things, when the, name, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he re- remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the capital captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. 
and put in custody of Haggai, who is in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther was, had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in, his, in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when king, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to a text like this. Um, that if it were depicted on a movie screen would be R-rated. And we find it in your word and we wonder what to do with it. Father, I pray that we would open, that you would open our eyes that we might see. And might see how you are faithful in the midst of hard days and hard circumstances. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, look with me at the beginning of this chapter. Um, it's been, to back up into this story, it's been about three years since Queen Vashti was deposed. Uh, this woman is known to history through Herodotus, uh, the histor a Greek historian, um, as a mistress, is how, um, how Herodotus refers to her. But her son is the future king, uh, Artaxerxes the first, and he is. Uh, but she is deposed. She is not regarded as queen anymore, even though her son is still going to be the royal heir. She has lost her position. Will not regain it because of the decree that the king has made against her in chapter one. And in the intervening period of about three years, Xerxes launched a war uh, against the Greeks. Uh, the one that he was planning in chapter one with this great banquet and war council. Uh, and he was, uh, he was held off for three days at Thermopylae, uh, at the hot gates there in, in, uh, in Greece. And then that was demoralizing to his army that a thousand Greeks could hold off a million-man army for three days. 
Uh, now, the Greeks were killed to the last man, but still, the ratio was discouraging. And, uh, and then eventually defeated by the Athenian navy at uh, Salamis, and he has to go back across the Hellespont, uh, back into Turkey, and return home with his tail between his legs, essentially. And when he gets home, he realizes, you know, it'd be nice to have the queen around. Whatever happened to her anyway? Uh, oh, uh, hmm, I got rid of her. I need a new queen, guys. Uh, what's, what are we going to do about that? And so his advisors, uh, probably these seven uh, princes that are mentioned in chapter 1, uh, one of the young men uh, mentions, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to just round up all of the most beautiful virgin girls from across the empire and make uh, the one whose bedroom performance is most pleasing to you the new queen. And yes, it is that gross. Like I say, if this, if this were on a movie, this would be an R-rated movie. Uh, as modern readers, we have an immediate reaction to this whole process. This is a king who is being encouraged and who endorses the idea of creating a perverse game for himself where women who are not mentioned as having a choice are to be brought into his harem, given various beauty treatments for 12 months, and then to spend one night in the king's bedroom. In fact, Esther is referred to in this section as being taken into the king's harem. Not going, but being taken into the king's harem. The most likely reward, if you can be called that, uh, is a life of luxurious desolation. You will be relocated from the rooms in the harem. The harem is both a, de a description of, uh, of uh, a collection of women that are there for the king's use, as well as a, de a, a description of a place, a building called the harem place where these women live. And um, if you're going to be taken from the room with the virgin girls into spend the night with the king and then into another part of the same building where you will live with the women that he has been with. And if the most likely outcome is that you will spend one night with the king and then you will not see the king again for the rest of your life, probably. And you will be well provided for in that palace, but it will be a very isolating thing. You will not be the king's wife in any real sense. Any children that result from your union with him will be promoted to positions within the, the palace, but they will not really be regarded as heirs of the king. You'll be a concubine at best. What is possibly worse is that you might actually win this little contest and become his favorite, and he would then begin to call upon you regularly to meet his desires. On the other hand, though you will not be his wife in any way that any woman would want to be, the result can be one of great power and influence as the king's new favorite. So it's possible that some of these girls 
eagerly went into the king's harem and that they were, in a sense, volunteers. I'm not sure what Esther thought. The text doesn't tell us what her response was to being taken in the king, in, into the king's harem in this way. No objection is ever recorded, but I also don't think she had much real choice in the matter other than to refuse and to possibly lose her life as a result. So this is a situation that is much more like formalized, legalized rape committed against dozens of girls by a very powerful man than anything like a marriage as God intended. And it is, therefore, I think, a heinous sin committed against Esther and these other women. And by the way, this, this kind of thing still happens, amen? People in positions of great power often abuse their power to use other people to meet their desires. Sometimes it's sexual sin, as it is here, but other times it takes a different form, and it's all of it sin, and all of it damages its victims. In other words, the choices that are here before God's people are all bad ones. Do I refuse to go into the king's harem and risk death like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel? That's about a hundred years prior to this, by the way. Or do I go along and make the best of it? And what we see here in this section is what happens when God's people decide to take that tack. To not be like Daniel and his friends, but to try to blend in, in a sense, to Persian culture. Mordecai, the names in, in this book are all very important. Mordecai is a Benjamite. He is a descendant of Kish. Kish, by the way, is the famous father of King Saul. So Mordecai is in the line of one of the royal families of Israel. He's probably a distant relative, but he hides his Jewish identity, and how he hides it is with his name. He adopts the name of a Babylonian god as his name. Babylonian god in question is Marduk. And we never find out that Mordecai even has a Jewish name. He's named after a Babylonian god. He also renames his young cousin Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle tree. But he renames her after the Babylonian goddess of sex and war, Ishtar, Esther. He has adopted her after her parents died. He, he um, takes her into his house as if she is his own daughter, and he commands her something which is in direct violation of at least three parts of the Mosaic Law. That when she goes into the king's court, she'll have to violate the dietary laws because the Persians did not keep kosher. Amen? And on top of that, she will have to not reveal her identity even though God commanded that His people were to remain and be identifiable as distinct from the Gentiles. And she used to hide who she is. And then on top of that, um, she will have to blend in and gain the favor of the king's eunuch in violation of God's command, and that they should not adopt their gods, 
she is very willing to accept the name of a Babylonian fertility goddess as her own. You know, Hebrew people typically name themselves after Yahweh. And so you get, for example, Elijah, right? The Yah part of that name is Yahweh. And his name literally means, my God is Yahweh, Elijah. Right? Um, and that was typical in Israel to take a name that reflected the fact that you were a worshiper of the true God. They try to blend in. And she will have to go and sleep with a Gentile and beyond that, a man who is not her husband at the time because no marriage is ever mentioned here. And I think that she and Mordecai probably do all of this because they are afraid. And it seems easier to blend in the Persian culture despite all of the moral compromises that that brings than to stand up and to risk your life. And we'll see later that it's impossible to blend in as a member of God's people. In fact, the central conflict of this book is that she will have to stand up and be counted as among the people of God. Despite the effort to avoid it, the choice is coming. Who, who will you be? But as we look back at this story, what we see is Mordecai is very concerned his young cousin and who would not be right this is a gross situation that he has allowed her to go into he had influence in the court he was an official in it he could have maybe stood in the way but he didn't and so the girl who is like his own daughter goes into the king's harem and the life that he has allowed her to go into is not good. And so he goes to check on her every day for 12 months until her night to go into the king's bedroom comes. And meanwhile, Esther is rising within the harem. She wins the favor of the king's eunuch in charge of the virgins. And he, she gains access through that to servant girls and to good advice from him. Presumably, given his role, he was well aware of the king's particular proclivities, and he passes that knowledge on to Esther. And she uses it to become the king's favorite and, her, and his new queen. Was this the right thing to do? What would you have done faced with these circumstances? Hang on to that. Think about that as we look at the the rest of the chapter here, beginning verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, but Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. 
Now, these verses tell us a little bit more about Mordecai and the position that he holds. He sits in the king's gate. In other words, the gate outside of his palace. And gates in, uh, in ancient Persia, there was an inner gate and an outer gate with a courtyard between them. And you sat in between those two doors. And from that position, you would render judgment or collect taxes or what have you. What Mordecai's specific role is, isn't known, but it is a place for the king's trusted servants, a place of significant power and influence. And in time, Mordecai learns of a plot against the king led by two of the eunuchs closest to the king, the guardians of the door to the king's own bedchamber. That's what guardian of the threshold means. They are those who are closest to the king. In other words, the people who could, if they wanted to, stick a knife in this man because they're the last line of defense. By the way, uh, Xerxes is right to be worried about being assassinated. During his reign, every year he would take 500 young men from across the empire, the smartest, the best, the brightest, and instead of a scholarship, what they would get is emasculated. They would become eunuchs and may be made servants in the king's palace. This was the practice of the ancient world. Uh, by the way, Daniel and his friends are probably eunuchs in the king's palace in Babylon when they go. One of the reasons probably why Daniel doesn't go back home when the 70 years of captivity are over is because even were he to return home, according to the Mosaic law, he would not be able to go and worship at the temple. Because a man who has been emasculated was forbidden by law to go into God's presence. But the Persians would take 500 young men every year and remove um, any ability that they would have to build a competing dynasty against the king. 20 years later, Xerxes was, in fact, assassinated by his own eunuchs for, so that his son Artaxerxes could come to power. But a plot against the king was a common occurrence. Because as you can imagine, every year you're creating 500 people with fresh resentment against what you have done to them. Amen? And you have put them in positions of power and given them access to you. Uh, this seems um, phenomenally stupid to me, but nonetheless, this was the way that the, that the Persian kingdom was run. Uh, it's, possibly, uh, it's possibly been done already to Mordecai himself, which is why he adopts her as his daughter and no mention of a family. Even though he's an older man, he's never mentioned as having a family. Uh, Mordecai, in this case, hears about the plot. He reports it to Esther, who then passes word to the king, and the, the two guilty eunuchs are executed. And they, the incident is recorded in the annals of the king's rule, but no reward is given to Mordecai, which is interesting. And it's unusual. Why is that? Well, because I think what we're going to find out later is that God is going to use these circumstances in a special way and even though God in his name is absent from the book, he is present and working in these circumstances. 
in these circumstances. And he is present and working in ordinary circumstances in Mordecai's life, in Esther's life, and your life too. Now at this point, you may be looking at this story along with me and going, what exactly is God doing, including this horrible little story in his holy book? Esther and Mordecai are morally ambiguous people. Their motives are not clear. Their obedience to God and His law is at best only partial. Esther had no choice about what happened to her, and she is therefore a victim of of a very powerful man. And that's horrible, and we should feel compassion and pity for her. But we should also note that it's never mentioned that she or Mordecai ever prayed about it ever sought the Lord in any way over this, ever asked for God to intervene, ever objected to it. And she willingly obeys Mordecai's instruction contrary to God's law to to conceal her Jewish identity. And that brings me back to how I introduced this section at the beginning. If you're reading this story through the lens of good people to imitate and godly people to follow in difficult times, you're left not really sure what to do with the book of Esther. But it is at this point that we understand that the character of Mordecai and of Esther herself and whether or not they did the right thing is not the point of the story. The point being made is about the character of God despite the character of His people. You see, what we're supposed to see here is that God still loves His people in horrible circumstances. And that He is still working His sovereign plan, His providence, to use the theological term, even for those members of His people who aren't all that godly. Even for people whose choices are not all good and who have been sinfully willing to blend into the pagan world around them rather than to stand out. And we should see too that He is even able to use great sins committed against us, not just the ones that we've committed, to bring glory to Himself and to bring good for us, His people, out of even these things. And I think that is such good news for us. Because men and women, I don't think we're supposed to take from this the idea that we can simply sin however we want and God will just work it out. But I do think that we're supposed to understand that God loves us despite our sin and our partial obedience and despite the worst things that other people might do to us. Because lots of people carry lots of shame over what has been done to them as well as the things they've done. Amen? The fact is, even the best of God's people, people like Joseph or David or Hannah or Abigail or Abraham or Elijah, were all more deeply sinful and more deeply flawed than we sometimes remember if it's been a while since we've read their story. They sinned against God and against other people and were themselves often sinned against greatly. And yet God still loved them and worked His sovereign plan to save and help them in spite of that. And here what we see is in spite of a sinful desire to fit in 
and to blend and to disappear rather than stand out from pagan culture and the worst parts of paganism. Despite great evil committed against God's people, God still loves His people and is still working His good and glorious plan to save them. Now you'll see more of that reality unfold as we keep going in the book, but the point is being made that God is not just the God who loves the super spiritual. That God is not simply the God who loves us when we're very obedient, or the ones who will be like Daniel and his friends and die rather than, than bow down. That He is also the God who loves the partially faithful. The ones whom the world abuses. The ones who are sinned against as well as sinners. And He is at work through the ordinary circumstances of our lives, even if we don't yet see how God's plan fits into the worst parts of our life and circumstances. So what do we do with this text? We come through it to know and to obey and to love God better because we realize how much He loves us, His people, and that He is still working for our good despite our failures, despite the sins committed against us through the ordinary circumstances of our lives. I don't know about you. You know what the doctrine of, of the Bible I struggle most with to get into my own heart and soul? It isn't the Trinity. That one I get, kind of. It isn't, it isn't God's, God's sovereignty and His, uh, His election and His choosing of us. That one I, I kind of get. It isn't the inerrancy of God's Word. It isn't uh, God's plan for sexuality or any of these other kinds of things that are kind of controversial or hard to get. It, the thing that is hardest for me to get is this. Are you ready? Jesus loves me. Me. I have no trouble believing that God is holy. No trouble with that. I have no trouble believing in a God who, who judges those who die in repentance and rejection of Him. I have no trouble believing that God loves us and sent His Son to die on the cross for us and to raise Him from the dead that we might have new life. But then when I turn it personally, and I look at a holy God and I look at myself, that He loves me? That He tolerates me, sure. That He sent His Son to die for my sins, you bet. But that He loves me? Really loves me? Despite all of my sin, despite all of my failure, despite all my partial obedience, that's a little harder. But it is deeply, gloriously, amazingly, wonderfully true. It is true that God in all of His holiness, all of His righteousness, all of His perfect justice, all of His sovereignty, all of His transcendent glory loves you. 
And it is essential, men and women, that you come to understand that. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what has been done to you. By the way, just another encouragement. One of the reasons we have journey groups is to help you get this into your soul. That God loves you. And that he, if you had been the only person in need of saving, God would have sent Jesus for you. For you and you alone. Because He loves you that much. To help, we help people process through both the great sins they have done and the great sins done to them and to come to understand at a heart level how much God loves them and desires to set them free from their past and to bring them close to Him. So, again, let me encourage you. If you have trouble getting that into your soul, talk to me after the service. Tell me I need to be in that group because I think God will use it in your life in a mighty way. Why is Esther 2 in God's book? To testify to this amazing truth that God loves sinners and those who are greatly sinned against and He is still working for their good. And through that, teaching us to love Him as a result. And it further teaches us that God is using even sin even great sin committed against us and the ordinary circumstances of our life and our job, the non-miraculous stuff of life to accomplish His plan and to save His people. Because after all, how could He not? Sinners are the only people on offer, right? We're it. There isn't, there isn't anybody else to use. And so God uses us. And God works through these things. And He uses them to bring His glorious plan of saving His people to fruition. And that beautiful, amazing truth is meant when it sinks into our soul to make us love God and therefore pursue Him and love Him and obey Him more and more and more as we come to understand more and more and more how truly, greatly we are loved. Amen? All right. That's what Esther 2 is all about. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at Your love for us. We are amazed that despite all of the, the guilt we bear for the sin we have committed, despite all the shame we carry, for the sin committed against us, all of the ways in which as we look at You, we feel completely inadequate. You say to us, My son, my daughter, my child, I love you. Father, I thank You that You are working in the daily stuff of our life through the circumstances where we don't even see You. Where we've forgotten to pray. Where we aren't sure if we are doing the right thing or maybe even if what we're doing is actively the wrong thing, that You are still working. 
that by your grace, you still weave all of the circumstances of life for the people whom you love together for their good and your glory. Father, I pray you'd help us see it and believe it and embrace it. Because, Father, without you, we are lost. Father, help us to love you as much as you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.